Episode 133 of the Nerd Bywords. He's Dave and myself pitching our own comic book ideas. The Byword begins now. Welcome into another all-inclusive episode of the Nerd Byword. On today's Byword Big Talk, we're going to be each giving our three comic book pitches for the big two. But first, we start every episode with... Nerd News! And this week's Nerd News is exclusively trailer reactions. Dave, what's on the pipe for you? Well, I think uh, we're, we're definitely going to have to talk about uh, the most recent trailer released, uh, and that is Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Now, as of this recording, uh, this t- trailer just dropped a couple of days ago, and you know I have been an incredibly vocal naysayer about going back to the well of Indiana Jones, especially considering how underwhelming and disappointing in many ways Kingdom of the Crystal Skull was. However, um, I'm not going to lie, guys, uh, I saw this trailer and it it did kind of get me hyped for the new Indiana Jones. And I know, I know one of the big criticisms, of course, Harrison Ford is uh, ancient at this point and uh, maybe a little bit too old to play Indiana Jones again and do all that swashbuckling, especially considering how much they leaned in. Uh, in Kingdom of the Crystal Skull already on how old he was. And now we know we are we're much further along even than that. But at the same time, uh, that there is a vibe in the trailer that if it is captured by the movie, it feels significantly more like Indiana Jones than Kingdom, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull did. Um, there's also the, the added benefit of Phoebe Waller-Bridge uh, in the cast as um, Indiana Jones' uh, goddaughter, which uh, I think is also an extremely interesting um, sort of way of uh, doing a next generation thing that they did very, very poorly in Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Um, there's a very, very cool shot of uh, Uncanny Valley Harrison Ford uh, where they have de-aged him that looks absolutely perfect. Um, and considering how you know critical I have been of the whole Mark Hamill uh, de-aging stuff that they have done um, in, in Disney shows, it kind of blows my mind that this particular uh, shot looks so good, like to the point where, you know, if the technology is that good, I'd like to know how expensive it is, guys, because let's just de-age him for a whole movie and go full Raiders, um, because that that looked incredible. Um, there, there is just a lot of, of vibes, I guess, in this trailer. It doesn't, re- you know, reveal too much about the story, but it's it's all vibes, man, and it feels like like raiders it feels like you know the last crusade it feels right as far as an indiana jones movie goes so either the movie uh is really promising or the editor of the teaser trailer is an absolute genius i do not know (laughs) Uh, (laughs) this this could come out and be complete trash again but the teaser trailer so far has actually kind of gotten me excited about this movie chris yeah, I, I've I've referenced this meme before, but I'm I'm uh, Michael Corleone in Godfather Part Three. Just when I think I'm out, they pull me back in, and that's I mean that's exactly how I feel. I mean, 
I can't I can't quite put it into words. Like you said, it's just vibes. Like the overall vibe just feels right. And I think so much about what went wrong with Kingdom of the Crystal Skull is something that we've criticized in other adap- film adaptations. Um, is just being a product of its time. And Shia LaBeouf was riding high uh, off of Transformers and things of that na- that nature. And he's, you know, fallen from grace, of course, since then. But like at that time in 2008 or nine, whenever that film came out, he was like one of the, you know, leading men uh, of Hollywood. And so they tried to capitalize on that. And then I think, you know, when you try and do that just because that's what they do, um, I think it falls flat. And that and, and for so many reasons, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull was just hollow and you could see right through it. Um, it was like you're behind the curtain of, and the Wizard of Oz is revealed within the first few minutes of the film. Um, it, it just, it just did not land, but I, I can't quite put it into words. You know, it's a minute and a half worth of footage. Who knows what it is, but it just feels right this time around. Yeah, it really does. And I'm, and I'm just, I'm psyched. Uh, I really hope, you know, considering this is most likely going to be the last hurrah for Indiana Jones, um, you know, especially considering that there's been a lot of talk out of Disney that they're not interested in recasting and Harrison Ford's getting kind of long in the tooth. This is probably this is probably Harrison Ford's and the character's victory lap in a lot of ways. Um, and so, you know, I think I think it, it's probably worth punting back for a second and just, you know, mentioning that Indiana Jones, I think even almost almost more so than than something like Star Wars really captured my imagination as a kid. Um, it is, I think, to me, the pinnacle of what George Lucas was doing early in his career, which was trying to, to, to bring back and modernize the type of adventure storytelling that was so, so um, common in like the serials of the 30s and 40s, you know? And, and so I love those old serials. I love the, the swashbuckling adventureness of it all. I think that's why Star Wars landed so well, particularly the original movie Star Wars, what's you know commonly referred to as a new hope these days. And and as Star Wars sort of developed away a little bit from its serial roots in a lot of ways, um, Indiana Jones stayed dug in, you know, and kept doing that sort of swashbuckling storytelling. So even Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, as weak as that movie was, and as much as there was wrong with that movie, it still felt like that kind of storytelling. And so for that alone, I really loved it. I think there is a a vacuum, I think, in modern storytelling. Um, we have become very serious, I guess. Mm-hmm. Everything has to be grounded and gritty. Yes, yeah. yes. And so that that swashbuckling, let's go punch some Nazis on a train. Like, I miss that, you know? I love that. And, and you know, it makes me a little bit sad that, you know, at least for the time being, this is probably going to be the last go-around for the character. But, but more so, I think, for that type of storytelling because it has gone out of fashion again. And I wish there was a, a George Lucas type who who loves that kind of old fashioned storytelling and, and is willing to kind of update it again and bring it back? The problem, of course, is you know Lucas consumed some of that stuff in his own youth and, and appreciated and loved it. But how many people you know in in the age of peak TV and streaming and everything is sitting around and watching old 
you know, serialized storytelling from the 30s and 40s. So this is going to be this. This is probably going to go the way of the dodo here pretty soon. And Indiana Jones feels in a lot of way like sort of the last vestiges of, of that type of storytelling. And I, I just I love it. And I'm going to miss it tremendously. Well, I, I'm, I'm going to hold out hope because I was a latecomer to Indiana Jones, um, but I, I immediately fell in love with it, um, you know, as someone who loves you know romanticist literature like alexander dumont and that swashbuckling d'artagnan uh i love zorro for the all the same reasons um and and I'm, I'm right there with you because like everything does not have to be gritty and real and grounded you know for the most part i come to media you know irrespective of what type of media for escapism the real world around me is real enough. I'm, I'm good. I'm good. I need some escapism. I need some adventures. I need some swashbuckling. And so that's what immediately latched me on to now a character like Dick Grayson, whose favorite book is the the Merry Adventures of Robin Hood. Like, I'm all here for that. And Nightcrawler, that's why I latched on to Kurt, is because he's a swashbuckling romanticist uh, protagonist. And, and so I... I I'm super excited for this movie and I hope that it, it lives up to the hype. And can I detour for a second because you said the magic words when it comes to swashbuckling, which is Zorro. What exactly has Antonio Banderas been smoking lately? Did you see that news story that Antonio Banderas would like to come back for another Zorro movie, that he's the old man and he passes on the mantle to Tom Holland? Tom Holland as Zorro? Oh, I don't know about Tom Holland. I didn't, oh, I didn't see the Tom Holland part. Yeah, I will take I will take Antonio Banderas to come back and do another Zorro any day of the week. But why does is his hand picked successor Tom Holland of all people? <laughs> I love and I love I love both of them. It's just no, Mm-mm. nope. Yeah, it's it's just it seems like a bad match. I mean, if you want to work with if you want to work with Tom Holland, dude, go for it. But 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 Zorro, Zorro, I, I made you speechless with the story. <laughs> I'm 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 I get the the swashbuckling vibes from Holland. I mean, I think that's what what makes him a good Spider-Man. But I think it's incredibly tone deaf to to cast a white whitest of the white actors in that role. Um, you know, and it's it's it already comes with you know, whatever of Antonio Banderas being European born and and playing a, a Latina character. Um, you know, in Alejandro Murrieta, but um, I think it's even more egregious, of course, with Tom Holland. All right, Chris, let's let's get off of this story, and you tell me a little bit about your trailer that you'd like to talk about. All right, so um, we I think we've both seen the Guardians Holiday Special. Uh, it delivered a lot of heart and um, put Palm Clementif in everything. Uh, holy lord she's far and away my favorite guardian now um but we got the final trailer for guardians 3 on their last adventure um they are this is this is as i'm understanding correctly if i'm understanding correctly this is significant time after thor has left so um they are once again trying to guard the galaxy they are actively on their crusade we get glimpses of um the High Evolutionary, and we get a glimpse of Adam Warlock. Um, and uh, I totally believe that uh, Rocket Raccoon is going to die in this film, Dave. 
yeah, I like the early footage. I like I like the vibe. This is very much <laughs> it's Guardians of the Galaxy, man. Like it feels like like part one and two. It is of the same cloth, and that's got me excited because I love those movies. Um, you know, I'm I'm gonna go ahead and say that uh, there's been some statements obviously made um, on social media by um, by James Gunn. Uh, one of the things he mentioned was that this movie is going to be very much Rocket's movie. Um, that he wants to focus in on that character. And, uh, you know, not surprised there. Obviously, it's just a really, really good character, right? Um, but on the same token, I think I have to come out and say that, you know, maybe it is okay to not kill off a, a, a character in every movie. You know, like if this is going to be the last hurrah of these characters, um, maybe just don't. Like, is that always really necessary? I mean, we, we lost... Is that the way you want to leave it? Flavor. Is that the yeah, way you want to you know, I mean, Yeah. Yeah, you lost original. We lost original flavor Groot, right? Uh, in the first one, um, and then obviously we lost Yondu in the second one. Um, and let's not even talk about the fact that we lost Gamora then in in you know in, in what was it Endgame. Um, so I'm not uh, I'm, I'm I'm not super hyped about the notion of of just go ahead and and killing off another character as the grand finale of the movie. You know, I'm a sucker for a good happy ending. Like, you know, bring us to the brink, make us think you're doing it. Sure. But it is okay to just let these characters ride off into the sunset and, and leave it at that, you know? Um, So all the speculation of, Oh, look, Drax has a hole in him in, you know, in his chest in, in one shot of the trailer. Maybe it's Drax dying. Like that's what everybody's focusing in on, you know, like who's going to die. And that's not the most interesting thing to me when it comes to this film. The most interesting thing to me by far is that this is going to be the last James Gunn Guardians of the Galaxy movie. And I have a mad love for those characters and I have a mad love for those movies. Um, I think the first Guardians was still the movie to recapture the feeling that I had watching Star Wars on the big screen. You know, that that sense of, of adventure and, and fun. And although there is danger, there's just, hey, there's that swashbuckling thing, right? So... Um, this is the end of that. And I think we should like lean into the enjoyment of that and enjoying this trailer and this footage and not just like sitting around talking for now the next, what, five, six months about who's going to die. That is not, that is not how I want to want this franchise to occupy my, my brain space over the next few months. You know, does that make any sense, man? I agree with what you're saying. I will say uh, the costumes, comic accuracy, God, they're gorgeous. Oh, absolutely. I think one, one, you know, the more comic accurate you go, the more fun we end up having, you know? All right, that wraps up our nerd news segment for this week. When we come back, we've got comic book pitches uh, for the big two. What were your reactions to the Indiana Jones and Guardians 3 trailer? Hit us up on social media at NerdByWord on Twitter and Instagram. We are now here for our ByWord. And Dave has been sitting and stewing on this one for a long time, but we each have three comic book pitches that we want to see. Um, Dave, what is the first comic book pitch that you have? All right. So obviously, um, you know, I've been, I've been writing, you know, some comic book stories and stuff. So um, the the pitches that we're going to talk about here are going to not be like personal stories that I'm hoping to one day write or something. Uh, these are really like 
what would I do if I were at DC Comics? Like, if I had the opportunity to write some DC comic books, like, what would I be into? So if I would go, you know, into corporate comics rather than writing indie short stories as I am right now, what what could you, what are the things that I want to do at, at corporate DC, you know? Um, and so my very first one I, I think should be really obvious is I would want, want to do a Superman story. Um, Superman is one of my all-time favorite characters to me, easily the most relatable. But how do you do something, quote-unquote, new with Superman? Now, I'm not going to say that this is a completely brand new idea. I'm sure that some creators have played with this notion. But I want to go all in on it. Um, so this would be a, a story where Superman... Uh, in a confrontation with Lex Luthor, is robbed of his powers. Lex Luthor is victorious. Superman is no longer uh, super for all intents and purposes. And Lex Luthor is triumphant. And he believes that now that Superman is out of the picture, he is untouchable. Um, and, uh, you know, in this story, he's still sort of like the legitimate businessman. Nobody really knows that he is a bad guy except for, for Superman. And so powerless... Uh, Superman now sets out to take down Lex Luthor once and for all, not with his superpowers, but with the power of journalism. And so as an investigative journalist, we have sort of an, an, an investigation detective story almost where Superman goes after Lex Luthor with the only power that he has left, which is finding the truth. Uh, and so this story would ve feature very, very little Superman in costume. Um, you know, you remove all the flashiness of the character, the cape, the suit, and you bring him down to his bare essence. What you have is Clark Kent, a good man who wants to do right by people. And so he goes after Lex Luthor um, and investigates his business dealings, the shady stuff going on behind the scenes. Uh, this opens up a lot of interesting commentary, I think, to me about like, corporate practices, um, corruption uh, within within government and within businesses, the, the relationship between the two. And ultimately, you know, uh, obviously, you know, this is a Superman story. Uh, Clark Kent would be victorious in the end in taking down Lex Luthor and restoring his powers. Um, and so you have this, this quintessential Superman story that really features very little Superman and instead really hones in on the character of Clark Kent and his profession as a journalist, which I think very many uh, writers oftentimes only use um, Clark being a, a journalist as window dressing for him to know when something is happening so he can go there, you know, breaking news style. Um, and, and they don't really dig into the notion that, hey, this is something that that he does because he's good at it and because he he likes it is another way of, of standing for truth. Um and so I, I think this would be a really, really fascinating story. Just do like a 12-issue maxi of Superman without powers going after Lex Luthor. I'm, I'm fascinated by this. I immediately think of, uh, you know, all the President's Men or Spotlight and, and something like that. And, and using investigative journalism to bring down the big bad uh, adversaries. Like this is this is fascinating to me. Yeah, and I think there's something really, really uh, enjoyable about uh, seeing a superhero stripped of their powers and still being able to do good in some way, if that makes sense. And I think it's in, in the day and age in which we live where the you know media as a result has been heavily distrusted because of idiocy and um, and things of that nature. I think this would be a very, very poignant story to tell. Yeah, I think so too, man. 
All right, let's go ahead and go into your first pitch. Uh, I I feel like uh, you have a lot of bats on your mind right now. Well, this is coming off of uh, last week's nerd commendation in Gotham Knights, and something that I really, really enjoyed in a unique aspect. But I'm 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 kind of molding it in a different fashion. Um, so my 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 book is called Children of the Bat. And it's essentially succession set in Gotham's most famous family tree. Bruce is in the twilight of his life, so he's not dead. Because I think him being alive, you know, adds an interesting element into it. Um, But he's in the twilight of his life and all of his children, biology be damned, have different ideas on what the future should hold. And so you have all of his protégés all obviously have conflicting ideologies and personalities and motivations um, the interactions that I've seen in Gotham Knights between particularly Jason and Dick are fascinating uh, in their different approaches. Um, and then you also have, you know, characters like Tim, like Damien, uh, who's uh, it probably one of my my disappointments, even though I understand, like, the complications of why he wasn't included. But the one thing I'm sad about with Gotham Knights is that Damien is not included. Um, and, you know, as someone who is the head of a non-traditional um, family and, and believes that by a uh, family comes in all different shapes and sizes, I think um, one of the things that kind of rubs me the wrong way is this emphasis on Damien being the biological son and that holding so much power and weight and I think that um, that should be amended a little bit in, in, in this type of story where um, family is so much deeper than bloodlines. Um, and so, like I said in, in last week's Nerd Accommodation, I instantly related to Dick Grayson um, being like the eldest child and feeling like you have the weight of the world on your shoulders. But how does that conflict with everybody else's opinions and strategies and you could even I, I immediately kind of fuse these together with something like Batman Beyond so you could even have Terry McGinnis uh, involved in, in this I guess it's an alternate universe but I just think that it would be fascinating to have Bruce still alive and have his input and yet you know he's advanced in age and uh, the next generation is ready to to take things on and go in different directions. Yeah, any story where you remove Bruce Wayne from the equation is obviously going to be uh, interesting. I think uh, you know Bruce has, in a lot of ways, kind of gotten long in the tooth. I guess as a way of putting it, um, and you know people have been, I think, struggling for a while now in figuring out how to do something interesting with uh, with the character. Um, and so, doing a thing where you kind of remove him uh, from the equation, I think, is is uh, is is really interesting. Um, Obviously, the Bat family has expanded tremendously over the years. And so I think there's a real opportunity there to let some of those other characters shine as soon as you remove Bruce from the equation. I think a great example of this is, of course, uh, Grant Morris and Frank Quietly when they did the whole Batman and Robin thing, uh, when Bruce was missing in the time stream and uh, you have the, the team of Dick Grayson as Batman and Damian Wayne as Robin. I think a lot of Dick Grayson fans would probably say that Dick should be Nightwing and shouldn't be Batman, but that run was absolutely incredible and showed how you can be Batman um, and be um, very different from Bruce Wayne's uh, iteration of the character. So, um, you know, I I kind of like this idea of seeing the uh, larger Bat family 
um, you know, dealing with and, and, and rising to the occasion of, of Batman being gone. In fact, uh, one of my own pitches kind of revolves around that idea just a little bit. So uh, obviously we'll get to that. Which uh, you recommended to me yesterday, that, that Batman and Robin run by Morrison and Quietly. And oh my God, I started it last night and I can't get enough. Like it is, it's a masterpiece. Like I, I, yeah, more on that in a future nerd commendation. But my God, it's so good. It really is ridiculously good. <laughs> I, I, I said it last night on social media, but like, ah, okay, I'm saving it for the it, the impending nerd commendation. It's so good. Just go freaking read it, um, Dave. You have been sitting on this gold mine for so long, and it's time for you to finally share with the class. Yeah, I've, I've talked about even how I would make this as a movie. Um, but I think it would also be really, really good um, as a comic book. Um, you, might, you might notice that even my, my, my Superman story could almost like work in like a mainline continuity, um, um, you know, uh, Superman book. But, but this, I think, it would be sort of separate from main continuity. Um, and, and the title of the story is Martian P.I., so I'm a big Martian Manhunter fan. I love John Jones with a red hot glowing passion. And I think he's one of the great characters that is always underutilized. And every time they try to do a solo outing with him, they don't have a real clear angle on what to do with him. Um, and so those oftentimes, despite great creator eff- efforts, those oftentimes fall flat. So I like the idea of, you know, the Martian civilization obviously has been gone for a long time. The Red Planet has been barren for for centuries. So I like the idea of, of John Jones, the last Martian, um, hiding out on Earth, you know, away from everybody, away from people, not wanting to, to interfere uh, with human development. But he's been around for centuries and it's just like isolated away and, and, and grieving the loss of his, his family and his civilization. And then loneliness finally gets the better of him and he starts, you know, interacting slowly with, with human beings. Um, and eventually we, we kind of just like, we, we, he settles in, in sort of this like, you know, 1950s era as a private detective. And that's really, really where we join him at the beginning of the story. And we kind of get a sense for how he lost his family and, and all that stuff sort of in, in flashbacks. But the big thing is, is that we're, we're kind of taking several different genres and throwing them in a blender. You know, we're taking the, the saucer movies of the 50s um, and that sort of aesthetic. So anything like we, we see uh, in flashbacks of Mars and stuff is very much like 1950s sci-fi, flying saucers and everything. Um, we're blending uh, the, the very real paranoia of the 1950s with the Red Scare and with McCarthyism. Um, and there's a real sense of, of paranoia, not just for, for John Jones, as he's worried about being, you know, being discovered that he's not actually human, but also that there are some, there's some other aliens and that's sort of the, the underlying, um, um, that are hiding, you know, because they're, sh- they're, they're shapeshifters like he is. And so that's an underlying paranoia. Um, and then, and then sort of those, those black and white old school, um, you know, film noir private eye stories, you know, and we're blending all this together in this, in this like beautiful sci-fi blend of, of John Jones living as a human, hiding out, working as a PI to help people, still being quote unquote a manhunter after all in some ways, and then getting drawn into a case that actually involves other shape-shifting aliens, which may or may not be other surviving Martians. Yeah, you know, it's the hardest case he's ever had. 
Um, and, and we just get this really cool blend of genres and maybe something finally truly distinctive for this totally awesome character. Um, if you want to tie it in with the larger um, DC universe, you can even say that, you know, there are other superheroes that he kind of bumps into, you know, we have sort of the, the post world war two JSA hanging out, but he does not want to, you know, be like them. Maybe he makes some kind of contact with one of them through one of his cases and is eventually persuaded to join them. That, that is an arc you can add, but that is, that is, you know, minor um, Easter eggy stuff to me. The big thing is I just want to take, I want to take the Martian Manhunter and fa- firmly place him into this 1950s sci-fi film noir vibe and just see what you can do with him in that situation. And I think there is there is so much you can do with that character in that era. It almost is like um, um, when, when you take like Superman smashes the clan and there's this beautiful period piece. I think the Martian Manhunter would thrive in a period piece. There's so many so many things to dissect here. Now, first and foremost, as a Thomas Magnum fan, I love the title Martian PI. Um, I think <laughs> I think if there is one thing that you and I had to put our money on that we both enjoy, it is detective uh, pieces. Like we, that is something that we share like to the nth degree. Uh, be it. Oh God! Just any any detective work um, is is just I'm always here for. You know, I remember when BBC Sherlock first came out, and we were just gushing about how much we loved it and how smart and inventive it was. Um, I, I love I love everything about that, and so I, I'm just totally here for this. It reminds me of one of my previous nerd commendations from many moons ago is um, Roberto Aguirre Sacasa's Nightcrawler um, from the early 2000s, where he is essentially a supernatural detective. And, you know, while the circumstances are are certainly different, I think the the heart of it is there. You have um, all the elements necessary for a, a fantastic detective piece. And, just sign me up and I, I want it and I'm pissed that we don't have it right now. Well, you know, I'll, I'll just say DC, I'm available uh, if, if you'd like to try this one out. <laughs> All right, Chris, so what is your second pitch for a comic book? You, you know, I'm the other, the one of the other aspects of my core interests are family pieces, if you can't tell. Uh, my second book is called uh, Darkholm and Adler. Maybe as as Marvel is wont to do is is to recycle old titles names. We could call it X-Men Blue, pun fully intended. Um, it's a family book centered around Mystique and Destiny uh, and their two children, uh, Rogue and Nightcrawler. What happens when you stop running for your life and face the traumatic events of your past as a family? Um, one of my greatest frustrations um, is uh, Nightcrawler's parentage and his backstory being retconned in the Draco. Um, for those of you that do not know, Chris, Chris Claremont's original plan for Nightcrawler's parentage were for uh, Mystique to take the form of a male and to impregnate destiny and that he would be their biological child together. And until I get that retconned um, and have Kurt officially have two moms, like I will just rage against the machine. Um, That is Jim shooter and his homophobia. (laughs) Um, So 
I I also am frustrated by how um, neither Destiny or Mystique truly will claim Kurt. Um, you know, you can make all the jokes you want about him, uh, about her tossing him over the waterfall as an infant and, and everything. But I also see the aspects of, you know, from her perspective as um, being being persecuted as a woman um, and um, having to hide him. But I think I, I finally want them to sit down and have the space to tackle that trauma together. Um now that Destiny has finally been resurrected and she is alive again, they can kind of deal with that trauma head on together rather than dance around it or make snide remarks at the Quiet Council meetings. Um, you also have um, the added bonus of having Gambit now married into the family, and we've gotten morsels of that in, uh, I believe it was Jerry Duggan's X-Men run. Um that destiny does not approve of this marriage, even though she was dead when they got married. So we can always unpack that for much needed drama and, uh, and, and stuff like that. So I I'm all here for a dark home Adler family book with, uh, with destiny, with mystique, with rogue nightcrawler and, and featuring gambit. Cause I'm here for it. And we need to unpack that stuff. Now, see, as somebody who is not as deeply involved in X-Men lore, I find this whole discussion extremely interesting. I also think it's interesting how you mentioned, like, Mystique taking on the form of a male uh, and then, like, impregnating someone um, as a male. Uh, because that is actually... I just literally finished uh, reading um, the entire Invincible run. I don't know if you're familiar with that one. There was a, there was a cartoon adaptation recently. I read the uh, first ten. I read the first ten issues, and I really, really enjoyed it. I didn't jump back on. I love the show. Love the show. Yeah, I did. I read the entire 144 issue run recently, um, with like recently being like I finished it last night. Um, and one of the characters in their Monster Girl uh, is obviously a, a woman, a girl, um, and you know can take on a monster form, which is male. And that is actually a plot point that occurs. Spoilers, uh, where she actually, uh, the monster form is male, and in the male form, she impregnates somebody, and then the kid comes looking for her later, um, which is very, 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 very cool uh, plot point the way it's handled in the story. So I would be here for this. I think I would be here for this in general. I think um, family dynamic like that would make for a really, really interesting book. Period, Chris. And I think um, you know. Bringing, we could even bring into the fold his adopted family, Mar- uh, Margali Zardos, uh, and and the entire you know Roma aspect of it and the sorcery behind it. Uh, so bring his adopted family into the mix as well. So I'm I'm, I'm all the way here for that. All right, Dave. Um, as a recent convert to a Dick Grayson superfan, and I am ravenously reading anything and everything that that man is involved in. Please share with me your last pitch. Uh, my last pitch, obviously, as you can imagine, would be another sort of Elseworlds tale, as the DC fans like to call them. Um, not something that would happen in main continuity. But I've always been really interested in a world where Dick Grayson doesn't become Nightwing. You know, So imagine you have a situation where you know Dick Grayson is Robin, and then he has that falling out with Batman. But instead of like adopting the Nightwing persona and going off and becoming you know his own man and his own hero, he just retires. He's done. You know, he goes, he, he meets a nice girl, starts a family, you know, and and has a normal life. And then one day uh, he turns on the news, and they found Batman dead in an alley. 
just shot just like his you know his parents all those years ago he's just dead in an alley everybody now knows he's he's you know was bruce wayne the body was found you know examined and everything and and dick grayson you know who has not had any major contact with bruce in years um because of their falling out is overcome with 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 grief and and with regret about how they left things and that you know his his oh my father's god now dead. oh and so he he does sort of the 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 unthinkable, which is he 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 goes in his basement, he digs out the old Robin suit, he puts it back on, and Robin returns. And as a as a fully grown man, not as Nightwing, but as Robin, uh, he returns to the Batcave. He, you know, gets the equipment that he can. You know, the Batcave's been discovered. There's all these people like combing through all of Bruce Wayne's stuff, the police tape everywhere. He gets what he can. Uh, and he starts investigating the murder of his of, of his adoptive father, and he tries to figure out what happened. Was this just how does some some dude with a gun just get the drop on Batman? You know, like there's got to be something else going on here. And so we got once again the uh, detective story, <laughs> and we have a guy who's been you know retired for years, you know, coming back out of retirement one last time putting on that Robin suit and trying to figure out what happened to his dad at the same time, you know, he has his, his wife and kid at home and, you know, how is he going to deal with that? You know, how can he justify to, to his wife that he's out there playing Robin again? Um, when, when, you know, he has responsibilities at home um, and what happens to his family if, if he, uh, you know, gets, gets shot in some alley, you know? And so there's plenty of internal conflict there as Dick Grayson has to, you know, come to terms with with his relationship with his father and and what happened in the past, and and try to make peace with that, and at the same time figure out, you know, ultimately who killed Batman. I think that would be a really really fun story. I mean, this is this has all the aspects that is is it's almost like it was like an a la carte menu that I ordered from, and uh, I'm I'm I absolutely love the idea, and now I want it. And you can have it for the low, low price of DC hiring me. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Chris, uh, final pitch. This one has me really intrigued. I think I'm all here for this. Oh, my God. So this was I I had the two solid ideas and then I just went off the rails with this third one. And I just threw at the wall and we'll see if it sticks. Uh, You know, one of my all time favorite franchises it's no secret i love the teenage mutant ninja turtles and my other true love is the x-men both mutants by name but they've never really interacted uh and that's a shame because the tmnt crossover with so many uh franchises that i love the tmnt power rangers is one of my favorite crossovers i've ever read i have mad love for the um the batman tmnt uh, tmnt crossovers um, uh, particularly the third one. The third one is absolutely crazy, and I think it's my favorite of the bunch, and maybe that's where I'm going with this. But my third and final pitch is TMNT X-Men, Mutant Madness in Murder World. Uh, after years of successfully absconding amongst the sewers of New York, the Turtles are at last discovered by Arcade, Master of Murder World, and sent to his domain to hold their own alongside the other set of Merry Mutants, the X-Men. And I think there's just so many fantastic character beats. Um, No matter which cast of X-Men that you want to include in this, um, I immediately want to see the interactions, uh, the gruff off, the, the, the brood off between Wolverine and Raphael. I want to see who can be the more prototypical 
uh, leader uh, between Leonardo and Cyclops and two of my new favorite characters in both respective properties. Um, I, I mean, I, I love both of these families of characters so much and I just want them to interact. And I think Arcade is a crazy enough villain to just make it happen. Um, I, I, I just I just want them to interact with one another. And I think the storytelling possibilities are endless. So yes, it's another TMNT crossover, but it's mutants. How do we not make this happen? Sign the checks, make it happen. Mutant madness and murder world. Yeah, this one's got me fascinated, dude. Like, uh, you're right. It would be. It's interesting. Like, what, what, um, what, what version of the X Men? You know, which which of the X Men are you going to throw in this? And what status quo do you want to use for this? Is it like that darn school, as you like to say, or is it the Krakoa yeah. era? Like, <laughs> like. Uh, there are so many different ways that you could go with this that I find, uh, you know, extremely interesting. So yeah, I'm totally here for this. I think I think just off the top of my head, um, you know, there's been like a real return to form with nostalgia, and I know that I'm I'm typically the one raging against the nostalgia, but um, we've had X Men Legends recently that kind of go back into the '90s and tell these apocryphal stories. Um, and then we also have like the X-Men 92 franchise. So I think you just lean into the 90s nostalgia of it all and go into like the X-Men TAS cast. I think that would be fascinating as they're doing with the X-Men 92. I think they're even doing like House of X 92 right now in the comics. And they're having like, what if Krakoa happened in the 90s with that cast of characters? So that's fascinating. Um, and, and if we can go back to the nineties for that, you, you know, like there was no other, uh, time in, in history that the turtles were more prevalent than in the nineties. So let's make it happen. Y'all I'm here for it, man. I really am. All right. That wraps up our byword big top. What are your reactions to our pitches and what comic books do you want to see? Hit us up on social media, Twitter and Instagram at nerd by word or individually that nerd Dave and that nerd Chris. When we come back, we've got two more nerd commendations and there's more dick in this one. All right. We are back for this week's final segment. We're coming at you with more. Dave, what you got for us this week? Um, an, a, a qualified nerd commendation with uh, great, great um, regrets. Uh, because this book is so good, and yet it has never been finished. Um, so I'd like to talk for a moment about Morning Glories. Uh, Morning Glories is an image comic book series. It's written by our old friend Nick Spencer. Um, only this one is, I think, probably some of his absolute best work. Uh, he's described the book as Runaways Meets Lost. Um, and the book is basically about six uh, brilliant but troubled uh, teenagers who are rec- uh, recruited to attend uh, a prestigious prep school, Morning Glory Academy, which is actually hiding some pretty sinister secrets and uh, directly involved in some pretty evil schemes. Um, and I think the Lost comparison is incredibly apt here. Uh, the uh, book also features art by Joy, uh, Joe Eisma, and his art is so 
um, clean is, I can think, the best way to put it. It is incredibly streamlined and beautiful, and 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 it really just pops off the page. Isma has an ability to make every single character. Um, whether that is uh, a main character uh, or just a side character, incredibly distinctive. Uh, just a very, very great um, uh, talent for just creating distinctive faces. Uh, you never have this problem with this book, which has this pretty sprawling cast of, of looking at two characters and saying, oh, they look too similar. I can't tell them apart. You know, This does not happen with Eisman's artwork. Now, um, it, it, the lost uh, um, comparison is perfect because it is a very much a, uh, a wheels within wheels kind of story featuring flashbacks and flash forwards and, you know, individual character history slowly unfold. And you get to see uh, in, through flashbacks how the, the, their past informs their present. Um, and the characters are all fascinating and interesting. Uh, like I said, this is, I think, Spencer's uh, best work by far. Here's the problem that makes this so uh, depressing. Uh, the The series ran for 50 issues in two cycles of, of I think, 25 issues, uh, being uh, labeled as a season one and as a season two. Regrettably, season two um, wrapped up on a cliffhanger uh, several years ago now, and no season three is in sight. So I don't know if the if the numbers weren't there to justify continuing publication into a third season or what, but this story is unfinished. Um, I'm hoping that eventually Spencer gets a chance to come back to this and create a third and final season uh, to kind of wrap everything up. Um, there are so many cool concepts in there. There's, you know, all sorts of sci-fi uh, frameworks, time travel is involved. Um, it is just such a, an interesting book. And I think it's so regrettable that currently it remains unfinished. Um, even in its unfinished form, however, uh, you know, collected across 10 trade paperbacks, I think it is absolutely worth the price of admission. I think absolutely everybody should read this, especially if you have kind of ambivalent feelings about like Spencer's Spider-Man run, for example. I think this is his finest work, especially his character work on this book is absolutely just spot on. It's beautifully written, beautiful art. Um, I hate, I hate, hate, hate reading things that are not finished or even watching TV shows that were canceled on a cliffhanger. But there is something about this series that just drew me in. And I think it's totally worth still checking out today, Chris. So I'm fascinated by this because if there is one uh, publisher of comic books that I have read next to nothing for, it's Image Comics. Um, the entire kind of edgelord like rebellious nature of image in the 90s was kind of off-putting to me none of those none of those initial books at image are interesting in the least um walking dead is not my ministry um invincible i've read a little bit of as we just mentioned but so i have not read a lot of image stuff when it comes to indie i'm almost exclusively boom or idw um but I have not read a lot of image, but I think this might be, you know, my gateway because I'm looking at the art alone and I'm fascinated by it. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm right there with you when I have, I have certain artists that have the same face for every character looking at you, J Scott Campbell. Um, it is incredibly frustrating. So I'm, 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 I'm here for the art alone. Um, I, I had, I had high hopes for the Spencer run. It's been, 
on, on ISM. It's been heavily detailed on this show ad nauseum at this point. I think something as fascinating as his um, Captain America run, Steve Rogers, and um, the way that Secret Empire played out was really, really, really interesting and intriguing to me, especially given the political landscape of at the time in which that was written. Um, and then, you know, the, the, uh, the ASM run started with such promise and was, I was such a defender for such a long time. And then it, for it to end as it did was extremely disappointing, but, um, I don't know. I don't know. Do I want to set myself up for disappointment and start reading this? But I think I might. Well, I'm, I'm excited that you're uh, interested in diving into this because I think it's totally a worthy read, even in its unfinished form. Um, let's go ahead and dive into your nerd commendation for this week, one that I find very interesting as well. So, as I said last week, um, I'm head over heels in love with the character of Dick Grayson, uh, based on of uh, you know, how much I've enjoyed Gotham Knights, how much I relate to the character. Um, and so I immediately purchased a subscription uh, of of DC Universe Infinite, the Ultra, and uh, I'm reading anything and everything Dick Grayson, and that includes uh, Nightwing Rebirth, and uh, so I am reading all of it, um, written by Tim Seeley, uh, tag teaming on art Javier Fernandez and Marcus Toe, who I enjoyed in his work in Excalibur, so it was cool to see him uh, on art. Uh, and and I'm really digging it. I know that you're telling me to expect disappointment in the uh, in the further the further I get into this, but the uh, better than Batman arc with Raptor, I I greatly enjoyed. I, I I enjoyed diving into his 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 backstory and his history and seeing. Uh, it's always great to see an adversary um, kind of play both sides of the fence and make some really good points. So I really enjoyed the character of Raptor. Uh, and then the better the Back to Bloodhaven arc was really, really cool. I love the romance between himself and Defacer. Um, and then uh, the Nightwing plus Must Die arc that I'm currently in is really, really great. Um, as someone who heavily, greatly enjoys Damian Wayne, seeing him back together again with Damian teaming up... Um, it also made me check out your uh, Batman and Robin recommendation by Morrison and Quietly, which I'm just ravenously enjoying. Uh, I'm sure to be a future nerd commendation soon and very soon. But everything I'm reading right now with Nightwing Rebirth, I know you tell me it falls off until Taylor picks it up again, but I'm liking what I read so far. I'm really excited to get, see you getting into like uh, the Dick Grayson story arcs. Uh, Rebirth Nightwing was really good for quite a while. Uh, then it was a creative team shift. Uh, then there was a very questionable decision done to the character uh, that really derailed, I think, everything, as you mentioned, until Taylor picks it back up. And I think the current run is quite good again. Um, I'll also say that uh, that past runs on Nightwing were quite good. I know you're not, you, you, uh, you know, like I have some ambivalent feelings about Chuck Dixon, um, but when you get into the uh, that 90s era, um, Nightwing, Robin, a huge chunk of Batman were all written by by Dixon, and so that initial run um, where Nightwing got a couple of miniseries and then his his first solo book, those were really good. Um, the same thing really goes for Tim Drake's Robin; his solo book was really good uh, as well there for a long time. In fact, that's where Stephanie Brown was first introduced. Um, 
So I know it, it's, it's sometimes difficult to go back to that, especially given uh, Dixon's current attitudes. Uh, but there is a lot of really good Nightwing content out there if you're willing to go backwards a little bit as well. Um, once you sync up with the current book, I think you'll really enjoy this as well. There's some really cool stuff happening there. Um, yeah, just Nightwing is a great character, and, and the more Nightwing, the better, if you ask me. All right, that wraps up another episode, 133, it's hard to believe, of the Nerd by Word podcast. We thank you for rolling along with us. Uh, you can find us on every podcast platform, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, or nerdbyword.com. And find us on social media. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at NerdByWord and individually at ThatNerdDave and at ThatNerdChris. Um, also want to just go ahead and throw out there that you can currently find me uh, also on Mastodon on the .art server. Um, and uh, I'm also playing around a little bit um, with another app called Hive. So uh, I'm uh, deeply exploring social media right now given some of the atmosphere happening um, on Twitter. And you might see... Uh, my buddy Chris there also diversifying his portfolio a little bit. So feel free to find that nerd Dave uh, on Hive and on Mastodon.art as well. Yeah, and I've been a big fan of Hive so far. Mastodon, not so much. Sorry, Lex. It's, I, I don't see it for it. Um, but uh, as of the time of recording, I think Hive shut down their servers for security purposes. So as, 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 I, as I understand it, there's only two folks running the thing. They're also looking to... Uh, to grow as a company um, and hire some new folks. So I, I like what I saw of Hive before they shut things down. Hopefully, fingers crossed, they can get it back up and running. But I, I really, really enjoyed Hive um, and, and hope that we continue to um, follow them continuing into the future. Um, but as it stands, you can also hit those social links in our bio, the link tree. You can also slide into our Discord server uh, for some cool shenanigans. You can nerd out with us, share your own nerd commendations. You can also find our merch stores. Um, and as always, stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd Byword is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez with additional drops composed by Joe Biondi. Our show art is by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. Mm-hmm.